I'm not supposed to be here. Um, there is no way I am the right person for this job. Why did I think I could ever do this? <coughs> oh, excuse me. I must be suffering from imposter syndrome. <laughs> Welcome to Breaking Ladders podcast. I'm your host, Katie Ostrico. And today we're going to talk about this myth around imposter syndrome and how believing in it and believing that it's real could actually hurt your ability to lead a team. So how did this even get started? You know, I can't remember the last time I was at a talk, and I will put a PS in here, especially a talk for women where imposter syndrome was not mentioned in some capacity. So as I started to dig into this episode, I was like, okay, where where did this even come from? Like, how, how did we start talking about this? So two psychologists in the 70s actually studied high achievers and found that there was this fear in many of them that they would be exposed as a fraud. Hello, like who has not been there? Um, and so they dubbed it the imposter syndrome. You know, I started hearing this early in my career. And it was usually followed by advice like, you know, strike a power pose, have confidence in a meeting, um, you know, deal with it in a positive way, know that everybody else feels this, like stuff that like did not help at all. And when I started to dig into it, like 70 to 80% of people claim that they suffer from this imposter syndrome, which to me says that it's universal and everybody has it. So it's not even a thing. So I will give you my perspective. I don't, I don't think it's real. Um, you know, of course, you don't always know what you're doing, right? So just to be clear, there are always people that will be better than you, smarter than you, can do things that you don't do. P.S. That is life. Um, surprise, that happens everywhere, okay? The myth is that the other executives in the room next to you have it all figured out, have all the answers, know all the things, and you're sitting there looking at your team or your initiatives or your priorities and going like, I have no idea how to do this. I don't know where to start. I'm not sure what to do. I have to figure this out. Surprise, and I've shared this with many people. Um, we at the executive level often don't have a clue what the priority should be either when we walk into a room or start a discussion. Um, we are making decisions on information that's usually well below what you'd like to be comfortable with. We have to make those decisions. They land on our desk for a reason. And we make a choice and it could be good, could be bad, don't know. And you move on from there. So here's my thing. If you make imposter syndrome real for you, it'll be real. Like it'll be this thing that you'll always be worried about and thinking about. And if you don't, um, it won't. So I'll give you an example. Probably one of the best examples I've ever found of a group of individuals that do not have this. Okay. Have you ever watched on Netflix the Formula One drive to survive. First of all, PS, as a marketing person, this is like amazing and genius because I would have never gotten into, you know, Formula One racing just in general, but I love this show. Um, and it's this like, you know, exciting, drama filled, you know, group of individuals trying to figure this thing out at 200 miles an hour with their hair on fire. 
And, you know, now I have a fantasy league that I participate in for Formula One. I have my favorites, which I'm happy to share with you. Um, So you're like, okay, this is a great story. How does this relate to imposter syndrome? So here's the deal. These guys are usually in their early 20s. Sometimes they're even teenagers when they get started. They are racing in an elite group. And there's 20 of them that exist in the world. That's it. So there's 10 teams, two people on a team. You want to talk about an elite group of people and you're 20, 21, 22 walking into this group. You've got talent. You've got ability. You're making decisions every day that are impacting a multi-million dollar organization. You know, every time you crash that car, every time you do something dumb and run it into a wall or somebody else, that might affect people's paycheck at the end of the year. That might affect how, how many people get to stay and who gets to go. They are arrogant. They have bigger egos than I've ever seen in my entire life. They are hardworking. They're humble. They like to win. They manage their losses. They do all of that at the same time. Sometimes they win. Sometimes they crash. And it's funny, if you listen at the end, and I caught this after the first season because I started hearing this over and over and over again, because each, each episode, they kind of profile a team and go a little bit more in depth with the team. When they won, they always thanked the team, the mechanics, the strategy, the people. They even thank their teammates a lot of times. And there's this whole like team dynamic that's kind of weird with this. When they lost every time, they apologized and said that they would do better. That's it. That's leadership right there. You know, if you are sitting in that seat, I'm sure there are days, and they don't show it on the episode, so I don't know if it actually exists for these guys. They should probably study them. But if you are sitting in that seat, it means you're supposed to be in that seat. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't perform, that you slack off, and you're still going to have that seat. No, that's not going to happen. But you're there for a reason. They saw talent in you. They saw something. You were able to do something that other people couldn't. And the way that they approach it is when they win, the team wins, and when they lose, they apologize for the mistakes or whatever caused them to lose. That doesn't mean they don't get mad when like a tire happens or somebody crashes into them or there's a lot of drama. That's what makes it kind of fun. But they understand that idea that sometimes they're going to lose and that's okay. And those moments when they lose doesn't mean they lose their seat. They need to perform to keep that over time. They need to be a little bit egocentric. They need to have a little bit of that arrogance. They're really hardworking in a sane way. Like even like how they work out on their necks. Like who knew that, you know, that was like a critical thing. I didn't know that. But they're super humble. Like how do you be like an arrogant, humble person? Because they know that the team is required to make that work. They know that they're not going to make the right decision every time. And they own it when they get it wrong. Like that's, that's leadership in a nutshell, right? You're going to have races where you win the race and it's amazing and everything worked out great. And you're going to have races where you smash into the wall on the first turn. Like it happens. And so if you ever want to watch this, I think it's an interesting testament to this idea that imposter syndrome, if you don't let it in, it doesn't have to be part of your dialogue. It doesn't have to be part of your day. 
Um, and P.S. If you want to know who my favorites are, um, Daniel Ricardo is one of my favorites. He was on the like super first season early episodes and I kind of got connected in with him, although I think he's semi-retiring. Um, Lewis Hamilton has done something that like nobody else has done in the sport, which is amazing. And my newest one that I like, who's on my fantasy team, is Carlos Sainz, who drives for Ferrari. So if you ever want to know, those are my favorites. But I would definitely check out that show. Because, and not check it out just for the fun and the drama and everything else, but see how those 20 guys think about how they lead their team and their organization and how they think about their approach to sitting in that seat and being one of 20 people that gets to do that for a living. So... You know, I'm going to share some stories with you about my experience with this. And, you know, like any good story, it feels good when I can say like, oh, I would be perfect and I would never fall for imposter syndrome. Um, Like, guess what? Everybody, if you let it in, does happen. And if you look at it through that lens of, you know, I'm afraid of being found out or somebody will see through me. Like everybody's had that moment. You're human, right? You will make amazing decisions for your team, for your organization, um, for your customer, and you will make terrible ones. You'll make ones that are really, really bad. Um, You'll make ones that, you know, you thought you did everything right and you still got it wrong. And I'll just share this. No one gets it right 100% of the time. So if your goal is to like step into a leadership role and have a vice president title in front of your name and thinking you're going to be perfect like kiss that by, like that does not happen. You probably get it wrong more times than you don't, but it's about deciding, evaluating, pivoting if you need to, and moving on. And it's easy to put that blame on yourself when things go wrong. It happens. You know, you do have to take responsibility for that. That is part of that leadership role. The reality is that things shift under your feet that you can't always control. A decision you made a year ago might not hold up right now. The world changes, life changes, your customers change. You know, I once heard somebody say, when you make an assumption about other people, are you assuming that they're doing the best they can or are you assuming that they're not? And my worldview is always, I'm assuming everybody's out there doing the best that they can, whatever that means for them. And why would I not assume that about myself? Why would I not assume that, that I'm not doing the best that I can? So I want to share a little bit of story with you about the pandemic, because um, we're not going to get into like COVID and all that good fun, but I'm going to share with you what it looked like sitting in an executive leadership role when that started, okay? So, you know, I had to, I got the opportunity to speak at a university um, and share with a senior class, it was like a capstone class. You know, they, they bring in people that are like, quote unquote, in the real world, like tell them what it's like. And I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And we were about two years into the pandemic. And I said, you know, I think I'm just going to share with them like what it looks like from my seat. Because oftentimes, until you're sitting there, you just you don't know. So pandemic hits, everything shuts down. Okay. And we were an essential business because uh, we provide building products. So it's kind of that, you know, home and safety. We were part of that that mix. Um, and so we had people in production that were working. Um, and what we did, we didn't know. We sent like almost everybody in the office home. We didn't, we didn't know what to do. And we're a small company, so it wasn't that many people that we sent home. You know, but we would have conference calls every morning as an executive team trying to figure things out. 
And the first question we had to figure out was, are we essential? Like, how many businesses ever had to ask that question before 2020? Am I essential? Like, I thought I was essential. Like, am I really essential? So we had to answer that. We were trying to figure out how we could stay open. We were trying to figure out what to do if someone came to our facility. You know, we had police knock on our door of our facility and say, why are you open? You know, so we had to show them that we were part of the value chain of what was considered essential workers. Um, we had to manage different states. So we're in Michigan, Georgia, and Texas. So we had to manage like three different states that all took very different approaches to how they were going to do this. We had to figure out how to protect our teams. We had to figure out what we would do in the office, what we would do at home, how we would work. So the thing that I shared with the class is we were answering, we were first having to identify the questions before we could even bother to answer them. You know, we had to try to think of any experience that we had that we could pull from. And guess what? Like nobody in the room had been through the pandemic in the early 1900s. So nobody knew what to do. We were trying to do the best we could with the information we had. So we determined that we were essential. um, And we started debating about whether we needed to be in the office or not. Um, And it was an interesting debate. It lasted about four weeks, kind of off and on. And where it landed for us, and I'm not judging any other company, I'm not judging anybody else that wants to work at home, this is just for us and our culture where we landed. And right or wrong, you know, right, we might have not been able to hire certain talent because of the decisions that we made. Um, You know, we might have brought in other talent because, but what we decided to do was we said if we're open, we're open. And we said if people are coming in to work, we're all going to come in to work. So it was about like eight weeks after the pandemic hit that we brought everybody back to the office. Now, we spaced people out, we gave people buffers, we managed through masks, no masks, you know, temperature checks, all these other kinds of things, changing rules, changing regulations. But we felt culturally it did not send the right message to us as an executive team that production could come in and work every day, you know, before there was any kind of protection um, and the office people we were going to keep you know, quote unquote, safe at home. So that's what we did. Um, Not right or wrong. That was just the decision that our team made. Now, looking back, it might have been right. It might have been wrong. There were times in the middle of it where we were trying to figure all these pieces out going, gosh, it would just be easier if like nobody was here. But I also think we got a lot further faster as a company because we were together. So there were some things for us that were really helpful. And we had to manage through a lot because we made that decision. Um, And so like, who knows how to read, you know, an OSHA statement to go, okay, I have to do masks, I have to temperature if I'm six feet away, we were trying to figure out what's six feet away, how do we manage all of these things? You know, we tried things that worked, we tried things that didn't work. You know, my team took over the front office of a building that we had had across the way that had like six or seven offices, so we could stick everybody in their own office. We actually went in and painted because my team wanted to get back together. We were ready to hang out with each other. We're people people and we like each other. So it's kind of fun. We had our own space for like two years that we kind of did our own thing, had our own little culture and team over there. And we had a blast. And, you know, I think it helped to manage through all the chaos for us because we were together. So, you know, we had to hire people because our sales took off. We had to hire people at a rate we never, ever had before. So we got real creative with how to do that. And some stuff we did, it worked. And some stuff we didn't, it didn't work. And, you know, if any of us became stuck, 
it was because we weren't sharing what was going on. It was because we didn't have full information. So good luck getting through a crisis if you can't be really open with what's working and what's not. Um, so technically, I guess we were all imposters, if you look at it that way. <laughs> and if we had let that, you know, hold us back and say, well, we don't know, we've never been through this, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, um, we wouldn't have made any decisions and who knows where we'd be sitting today. And some of our competitors made different decisions than us, good, bad, or otherwise, you know. And for us, we can't walk into it as leaders going, you know, hey, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. None of us knew what we were doing. We were just trying to do the best we could with the information we had and stay true to who we were and what was important to us and what was important to our customers and what was important to our company culture. Um, and we didn't get it right a lot of the time. It was not perfect. And that's okay. You know, and that happens. So you know, when we look back at those kinds of stories, there becomes this myth afterwards of like, oh, everything worked out. It was great. It was perfect. It wasn't in the middle of it. It's not now. It's never going to be. And I think, you know, that becomes the actual syndrome that I think people suffer from. It's not this imposter syndrome. It's the syndrome of people who want to be perfect. Um, Good luck, by the way. Um, I have no illusion that I've ever been close to perfect. So that is not a goal for me. That is not something I've ever even been within arm's reach of or like a mile of. Um, But I get that. I get that idea of like, if I do it, I want to do it well. I want to do it right. And, you know, I had a leader share with me at one point that if you know 60% of the information, like decide and go um, and see what happens. Because you're never going to get 100%. If you wait till everything is perfect and everything is right and everything is amazing, you'll never do anything in business and you certainly won't jump ahead of where your customers are and where the market is and where you need to go. And I think that's what happens for a lot of managers. They are amazing individual contributors and then they step into this management role where it's all vague. It's a lot of people stuff. There are no right answers. You're trying to be this great perfect person because that's what got you to this position and you're not used to making mistakes. You haven't made mistakes in a while because you were really good at your job. Um, and you're like, I suck. I make a ton of mistakes. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, that's what happens. Um, but you have this long career, you know, I get told probably on a weekly basis from my boss, who's the president of the company. Um, it's a marathon, not a sprint. When he sees me going like, well, I got to do this. I got to get this done. I'm working on this. I'm trying to keep this up and I'm juggling this right here. You know, marathon, not a sprint. He's like, you're not going to get it all done. Figure out what you're going to prioritize. So, you know, for me, I've walked into companies where I didn't understand the culture and I had to hire people. So I'll give you an example of, of where, you know, my perfectionism like went and blew up in my face. So the company I'm with now, I walked in and every company I've worked at has its own distinctive, unique culture. And so I had walked into this company and I had to hire people because there were some gaps and I was hiring people that weren't working out, like they weren't fitting within the culture. And I didn't really understand why. And some of them I moved on and some of them moved on of their own volition. And so, you know, I went to my boss and I'm like, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm done hiring people. Like, I'm not good at this. This is terrible. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, the people I'm bringing in aren't working out. They're not a good fit. 
Um, some of it's probably on me because I was traveling a ton, trying to understand customers in the market. Some of it was their personality. Some of it was I couldn't explain that coming in. And so, you know, my reaction was like, I'm terrible at this. I'm not doing this. And one of the reasons I had that reaction is because at my last two companies, I was able to bring in people that fit and worked really well as a group. And we had amazing team dynamics. And it just, it just wasn't happening for me when I stepped into this other organization. Um, and so my boss is like, well, here's the thing. In baseball, like you can bat like 350 and you're an all-star. So I can, you know, do three out, three and a half out of 10 people I get right and I'm amazing. Now you don't want those stats as a leader. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's a lot of work if you have those stats. But what it did is it made me feel better. Um, and I got what he was saying. Like sometimes you're gonna have misses in your career. Or sometimes you're going to have people come in and then they're going to leave that you want to keep. Sometimes you're going to have people that stay that you want to move them on and you have to manage through that. Um, and we struggled with some other hires, and, and but we started talking about it. And we started being real open about it. Um, and what happened was we started changing the way that we brought people in. What we found is that we wanted certain traits and behaviors and we can teach you the other functions of the job. So we created these eight characteristics of the type of people, we wrote them down, we talk about them a lot now, that fit within our team and fit within our culture. And we made it real public and we hire and we promote and we manage the team based on those eight characteristics. Um, they're all behavior based. They're all things that can be worked on. They're all things that are important to us as a group. There are things that you don't often find when you're sitting across from somebody for 30 minutes looking at a resume as they're telling you all the projects they've done. It's things like, are they hungry? Are they humble? Are they curious? You know, one of my interview questions is, what's the last book that you read? Or tell me about it. And I'm not asking to go, are they a reader? Are they amazing? I'm asking, like, are you reading stuff because you're curious about something? I.e. one of my previous podcasts, if you want to go listen to it. Um, but we started asking, you know, are they collaborative? Are they disciplined with their time? Um, are they smart? Not in the way of like book smart, but can they read a room? Do they know when to talk? Do they know when to not talk? Or especially, you know, in certain sales roles, do they know how to manage that room and how to move things forward? Um, are they forward thinking? So can they think beyond today? And once we design those characteristics, and started hiring and bringing people in and talking about them really openly, it's changed the way that the team interacts and it has created more successful people that we started to bring into the organization. So not getting it right and not being perfect probably led to a better process for us long-term and led us to be in a better place now than we were three years ago. So I think perfect prohibits that progress and that evaluation and that like looking back perfect is super overrated like if you want to be perfect all the time um, and you live in a bubble that's awesome but if you live in the real world like it does not happen <laughs> and I think when people struggle with imposter syndrome or, or they talk about it it's really this feeling about you know I get things more wrong than I do right in a day and I don't like that and that's the reality. So one of the ways that you've got to get beyond this is you've got to go, 
okay, I know if I want to be a leader, I'm going to step into roles that I have no expertise in, that I've never done the job. So you got to get really good at learning. And you've got to accept the fact that when you walk in that door, especially, you know, I've managed customer service teams, engineering teams, sales teams, graphic design. Like, I don't, I never did any of that stuff before I managed those groups. So you're stretching, you're struggling, you're learning. And you've got to take that learning mindset to get out of your way and to get rid of that imposter syndrome idea. So how do you become an effective learner? So I'll give you a couple of strategies that I've used. So I ask a ton of questions. I'm not afraid to ask questions. Um, have you, if you've never heard of the five whys, I would check it out. It's really effective. It's like you keep asking till you get to the root cause. So I'll give you a, a funny example. I was working in an organization and um, I hadn't had a dress code in like 10 years. And apparently this company had like an unwritten dress code rule, which I didn't know. Um, and so people were talking about you know, hey, um, you're not supposed to wear jeans on like a Tuesday. I'm like, what? Like, it was just out of my wheelhouse. I hadn't even ever thought about that. Um, and so I was director and I had a customer service, you know, and marketing team that I was managing. And I, I heard these rumblings going on. And I'm like, okay, explain to me, like, like, do we have a dress code? Did I just not get trained on that? Like, is that an important thing? And, and as I'm meeting with my fellow executives, um, and they said, well, you know, here's the deal. Um, this guy who used to work here, who doesn't work here anymore, who was super old school, like didn't like jeans, but he finally decided that people could wear jeans on Friday. I'm like, mm-hmm. So, so a guy who doesn't work here didn't like certain material on pants and created an unwritten rule that people shouldn't do that because he didn't like it. But it's not actually a company policy. And even though he's no longer here, you all still follow that? And they're like, well, yeah, it was really important to him. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, you know, he was really traditional in his thinking. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, he was older and that's how he was raised. And, you know, we just followed it. And I'm like, why? And you get to this root cause and, and you get to the answer. And it was like, well, I don't know. Like, yeah, it was important to him. And we just did it. I'm like, well, he doesn't work here anymore, and my team's not going to follow that rule. Um, so, P.S., they can wear what they want. And I went and told him that. You know, it's things like that where you start to identify these weird cultural things that just become norms. And that's, like, not a super important one, but it was one that was important to my team, actually. Um, and they're like, well, if your team starts wearing jeans, everybody's going to want to. And I'm like, well, that sounds a lot like a you problem, so good luck with that. Um, and because of the chatter, you know, the president, my boss ended up changing the dress code to be like, dress appropriately for work. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Wear what you want. Um, but, you know, asking those kinds of questions and getting to those root causes are how, as a leader, you can identify different things. I couldn't tell them how to, how to answer the phones better when I started. I couldn't tell them, you know, how to use certain input machines to put the orders in and the programs we were using. But I could make them comfortable while they were doing it, you know. I could do something that could help my team to come in every day and go, hey, I'm going to wear things that are more casual and I'm going to feel better and therefore I'm going to treat my customers better because I'm comfortable when I'm on the phone. You know, I'm adding value in a different way. I'm not an imposter just because I can't do everything that they can do. But I'm providing value to that team in a different way. And again, like super minor didn't make a big difference, but it was just one of the things that cracked me up about it. Um, 
And just as a side note, we had somebody that was like chattering about it, like, oh, the customer service team are all wearing jeans every day. And so I asked her to, to come back to my office and I'm like, hi, um, I hear you're talking about like what my team's wearing. And she's like, yeah. And I said, great. That sounds like you have time on your hands. So I've got a couple of projects I need you to pick up and start working on. Um, chatter on that died real quick. So that gives you like a little bit of a lens into how my leadership is. But this idea of protecting my team, I'm not an imposter. I didn't know all the ins and outs of it, but I could find things that were, you know, causing me to ask questions and present them as a way that maybe we can start to think differently about those. That became a value. And so, you know, what I would do is find some things on your team, either work-related, priority-related, or even cultural or team-related, you know, and ask different people what's working, what's not. What do you like? What do you not like? What do you wish we could be doing that we're not doing? What do you wish we could stop doing that we have to do? Um, and then summarize what you've learned. So take like 30 to 45 days and just learn about your company, about your team, about your customers. Summarize what you found and share it with your peers, share it with your boss. Um, confirm that they see what you see. Or talk through the things that maybe you've identified that they can't see. Prioritize a couple of areas, dig in deep, and see if you can get a quick win. And then you start to build from there. That's that learning mindset. That's that mindset of you walked in and it's like the first day of school. You're not going to know as much as the last day of school. Don't expect to. So start and make progress. You know, read, listen, learn, find other ways to get information. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I like listening to lectures. A lot of people like TED Talks. You know, I had somebody on our team recently is like, you guys do a lot of reading. Um, I have to get back into reading because <laughs> our team likes to read a lot. Um, so have like a learning goal that you're trying to do each month. And if you're a consistent learner, you're going to be a more effective learner and you're not going to worry as much about whether you know everything when you walk in that first day. So one of the things that happens with this imposter syndrome is this self-talk. And I don't know if anybody's watched Schitt's Creek. It's one of my favorite shows. And I love when um, Alexis and David are driving to his driving test. And, you know, he's like freaking out. And she's like, I don't know why you freak out. And he's like, you know, you skate through life. And she's like, I walk through life in great shoes, which is like an amazing line. But the line that she puts in there that I think is real is she's like, you're thinking about you a whole lot more than other people are thinking about you. And I think that's that self-talk, right? So self-talk is that thing that happens in your head that's positive and negative, tends to be more negative. The negative is more louder. It's really your brain alerting you to danger is really why that happens. But, you know, research shows that like 80% of the thoughts we have are negative in our heads. Like how insane is that? So, you know, right now, let's let's go through my self-talk, right? We'll open up the the crevice of the back of my brain and I'll give you a little insight like, oh, this podcast, like who is ever going to listen to this? Why would anyone listen to anything I have to say? Like, I'm not some published author. I'm not some famous person. I haven't started a company. Um, I've just like led these small teams at small companies and just had some thoughts and like, who am I to do any of this? Well, okay, that was fun. So this is episode four. So we're going to stop because all this self-talk in my head. Or I can go, you know what, like maybe like five people will listen every episode and I can help them. Like, that's totally worth it for me. Um, but that self-talk inside your head can shut you down in an instant. So 
for many people in the workplace, it's this idea of anxiety and self-talk. And it's like, I'm stressing myself out. I don't know how to do this. I'm afraid of all these things. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to stay late. I'm going to do these behaviors to try to overcome this thing in my head. Um, and self-talk is kind of like this appetizer of this meal that starts to eat at you. So no one else can change what's going on in your head. Um, only you can do that. And only you can start to shift it. So my son came home from school one time and he was asking me if I've heard about the power of yet. Now, my first instinct was to go like, that's got to be some Pokemon character or something. I don't know what that means the way he phrased it um, or a video game or something he was doing. So I'm like, no, I don't know what that is. And so he was in third grade, just started third grade. And his teacher had said, you know, we're going to be working on harder math, harder reading, some of these other activities. And he said, when you're doing something new, that you don't know how to do that yet. And I thought about that for a minute. And I said, that is the perfect antidote to imposter syndrome. You know, I told him that I could learn something from that. My team could learn something from that. How awesome is that one word, the power of one word yet. So next time you're given something, a challenge or a new role or a team that you don't know anything about, and you're like, I shouldn't be here. I don't know anything. You know, you don't know how to do this yet. You're not smart enough yet to understand that. You you don't understand that process yet. You don't understand how your customers make decisions yet. But you can learn. And you have to be your first cheerleader no matter how awkward that feels. Um, you have to be the one that's saying, I don't know this yet. You know, do a podcast, I had to learn how to do a software, how to plug in like music at the beginning and the end, how to edit it, how to do all these things. I didn't know any of that when I started. I just bought a microphone and I'm like, I'm just going to start doing this because I've been giving these talks and I'd been sharing some of these ideas with people. And I'm like, you know, I'm just going to do this and see what happens. I didn't know how to do a podcast yet. And you might argue I still don't, but I'm getting better each time. I'm getting a little bit smarter each time. I'm doing better each time I do them, hopefully. And when I get to the end of season one, hopefully the last one of that season is a lot better than the first one. It's that idea of I don't know how to do it yet, but I'm not going to let that stop me. So what I'd love for you to do is, is here's kind of my challenge for you is, is think of something new that you want to try, either work or life, whatever it is, and try to get ahead of your brain a little bit. So what's the self-talk that's going to happen inside your head when you get into it? You know, I haven't done this before. I don't know how to do it. Write down that. Write down your fears. Like, what if it doesn't work? Hey, what if you do a podcast and it doesn't work? It, it's just time and energy. Okay, I can live with that. I'll write that down. You know, the worst that could happen is somebody hears it and they're like, oh, I had you as a boss and you were 100% terrible and I'm going to write a bunch of reviews about you. That, that could happen, <laughs> you know, right? That would be pretty bad. Okay. And what if I succeed? Which sometimes is scarier than if you fail. Like what if people hear this and then they start talking and commenting and I'm a pretty private person. They start digging into my life and like, oh my gosh. And then like, hey, you have to write a book and you have to also be a wife and a mom and have a job and do these other things. And okay, that seems scarier as the success and the failure a little bit. Um, Okay, so I know that. So I've written down what is my challenge? What's my self-talk? What am I afraid of? What's, what would happen if it goes wrong? What would happen if I succeed? Okay. And then 
just dive in and start doing it. And when that self-talk rears its head, guess what? Because you've already kind of mapped out some of those, you've probably already started thinking about how you might overcome that. Hey, I don't know how to do a podcast and record it. So what are the best programs? Well, I went and read a bunch of articles and said this is the easiest one for beginners. Um, How do you edit software? I don't know. I went to YouTube and watched videos on how to incorporate different things and how to do the different sound mixing and fading and I watch YouTube because I knew that that was something I didn't know how to do yet. And so if you identify those, you can get ahead of them. And then when you get stuck, you can just keep working different ways to figure it out. And when you get done and you look back, you probably look back at it and go, that was a great learning experience. Yeah, there were things I didn't know. I should have done this better. Could have figured things out differently. But it wasn't as bad as I thought. It probably wasn't as great as you thought. P.S. That typically happens in work too. You're like, this is amazing. And it ends up being okay. And then it's like, this is terrible. And it ends up being okay. Um, You know, but that best case was probably attainable. And because you tried and because you did it, you know, you put something out there and you won't be as afraid that next time. So what I would love to do is put imposter syndrome to bed. I'd love to hear people stop talking about it. I don't think it's real. I think it's a self-induced thing. I think it's just human nature that when you walk into something new, you go, I don't know what I'm doing, no matter what it is. That's just part of being human and part of learning. So, you know, let's kick it in the teeth. It's a total myth. It does not exist for you unless you make it one. Um, What I'd love to have you change your mindset into is this idea of, I don't know how to do things yet, but I can figure it out. I can ask questions. I can try. I'm here for a reason. I'm sitting in the seat for a reason, like a Formula One driver. I'm supposed to be here, so I'll figure it out. So I'd love to hear when you get into some of these situations, if you walked in and felt like an imposter and were able to work your way through it and, you know, kick that thing out the back door and go, that's not what I do anymore. Um, So you can connect on Facebook and Instagram at Breaking Ladders. Um, Or you can reach out to me directly at breakingladders2, the number two at gmail.com. You know, I'd love to connect with you as your resident imposter podcaster, um, who's going to do it anyway, and we'll figure this thing out. And I might not be, you know, getting a million downloads yet, or maybe never, and that's okay. But engaging with you guys and having people listen and learn, you know, that's the fun of it for me. That's why I like doing it. So thanks so much for listening. And I will be excited to talk to you again for our next episode.